everyone. Welcome to tonight's event. My name is Beth Hannan. I'm the Associate Director of the Forum for European Philosophy, and you're all very welcome. Uh, some of you will have heard me say this before, and I apologise for the repetition. But for those of you who don't know, the Forum is an independent charity that puts on philosophy and philosophy-themed events. Uh, we put them on for free, without tickets or reservations. And the reason we're able to do this is because of the generosity of our donors and of the support of the LSE. If you enjoy our events, please do consider donating some money to the Forum, which you can do via our website. Uh, we have on the website as well podcasts of all the events we've done over the last... Well, the podcasts go back 10 years, our events go back 20. Uh, we also have a blog where we have academic philosophers writing about the research and you're uh, very welcome to check that out. Uh, just a few housekeeping matters before we get going. Uh, this is being recorded for a podcast, so uh, if you do ask a question, be aware that your voice will be recorded. Also, if you could turn off the volume on your phones, that would be fantastic. Please feel free to keep your phones on and, and live tweet away. We have our own hashtag, LSEFEP. Um, you're more than welcome to tweet along with the event, but do keep the volume off. Um, and that's everything. I'll hand you over to Danielle for tonight's event. Thanks very much, Beth. Um, again, it's so lovely to see so many of you at this event. Um, our speakers this evening will be discussing Franz Fanon and political activism. The format for the event is that each of our three panellists will speak for about ten minutes, um, and then that will open into a discussion, and then there will be time for audience questions at the end. Uh, so I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Madhu Krishnan, who is lecturer in English Literature at the University of Bristol. Yes, thank you very much, Danielle, and thank you for having me, and thank you to everyone for coming. Um, so the prompt for this forum asked us to think about what Fanon can teach us about the contemporary world, um, to think about the ways in which Fanon's writing can help us understand more recent political uprisings and revolutions, as well as new forms of resistance, and the ways in which Fanon can shed light upon a political landscape transformed in the context of 21st century globalization. And I think that this is a really interesting question in many ways. Broadly speaking, looking around the world today, we have clear evidence of a socio-racial dynamic, which has not yet surpassed what Fanon in Black Skin, White Masks once characterized as the twin phenomenon as of the historico-racial and racial epidermal schema experienced by the black man. For Fanon, as he expresses in that work, blackness is a social category, the terms and conditions of which are essentialized through perversions of history, consolidated through a type of epidermalization in which value or lack thereof is literally written onto the body through an external gaze which is simultaneously internalized and socialized as a pathology under white supremacy. Depressingly, one could easily make the argument that one and a half decades into the 21st century, the black body is more pathologized than ever. From America to Britain to France and beyond, the black body stands as an aberration, its value as a human life, a grievable or immortable life in Judith Butler's terms, radically displaced under the pervasive conditions of global oppression. And reaching back further, we might see too a Fanonian sensibility at work in the string of political movements and uprisings which have spread across the global south since the turn of the century, as well as, and perhaps most critically, in the repression with which these movements have been made in which we can see the tenacity of the will to power of a bourgeois class who identify not with the popular masses, but with the global hegemonic classes. 
Half a century on, the promises of decolonization seem lost. Its pitfalls, which Fanon so presciently warned us about, too potent. But I think it's just as important to think about the ways in which our world is not and could not be the world in which Fanon wrote. I myself am a lecturer in English, and I'm also the director of the Center for the Study of Postcolonial Societies. By employment and by training, I'm a literary critic. And so one of my interests is in what Edra Said once called the worldliness of the text, or its social and political embeddedness. And I think that in considering the worldliness of Fanon vis-a-vis our current contemporary political moment, what we find is instructive. Fanon's two major works, Black Skin, White Masks, and The Wretched of the Earth, were published in 1952 and 1961, respectively. One was written as a refused thesis for his doctoral examinations, and the other was dictated to his wife, Marie-Joseph Fanon, on his deathbed. The decade which spans the creation of these two works was a time of intense change in French imperial policy. And I think it's crucial when we're approaching Fanon to remember that he wrote as a French imperial subject, an évolué, a middle-class Martinetian, a member of the upper classes of the old dominions. And his political and social philosophies are very much informed by that context, and particularly the shock that he felt from leaving that middle-class world of the Évulé and moving to France and becoming racialized in that movement. As historian Frederick Cooper has written, by the end of the 1950s, French officials were looking beyond the aura of normalcy and entitlement which was attached to imperialism towards a hard examination of the costs and benefits of colonial rule predicated in large part by World War II. Transitioning from the empire to the Union Française in 1946 and then to the Communité Française in 1958, French policy during the decade functioned through an ostensible commitment to the devolution of authority, which barely concealed a deeper attachment to the notion of greater France and what Gary Wilder has called the imperial nation-state. It was during this period that the future leaders of French Africa and beyond were able to work within the emerging discourses of justification of continued French dominance to manipulate the system towards independence. So in other words, they were able to use the rhetoric of French rule as a means of dismantling it. It's difficult in 2016 to capture the extent to which the promises of this time and the potential for alternative models of sociopolitical organization remained radically open. Even the nation-state as political locus was by no means a given in this period, with competing visions of confederation, supranational affiliation, and genuine pan-African sensibility equally apparent. It is thus in this context that we must understand Fanon, and particularly the utopian evocations which permeate his work. From Black Skin, White Masks, which ends with what its author calls its final prayer, an invocation that his body should always make him a man who questions, to the wretched of the earth with its exhortation that, quote, for Europe, for ourselves, and for humanity, comrades, we must make a new start, develop a new way of thinking, and endeavor to create a new man, Fanon's work is imbued with a messianic sensibility, a sense of living on the threshold of history, or the sensation of what Gayatri Spivak once called the future anterior, a time yet to come, but still ripe with its promises. So 50 years from that time, we now live in a vastly different society. Despite constant assaults on its boundaries and sovereignty, the nation-state remains the locus of political action in ways that were not obvious in Fanon's time. And I think one thing we can think about here is how, for instance, the current refugee crisis paradoxically demonstrates this. It demonstrates the continued sovereignty of national borders in our everyday lives, particularly for those amongst us who are most vulnerable. 
More pertinently, the open horizons of Fanon's messianic future seem to be closed, with the seemingly unstoppable proliferation of neoliberal ideologies, economic dispossession, and the entrenchment of the uneven geographies of capitalist expansion. Yet to my mind, this makes Fanon more pressing than ever. If we're to return to the question of what we might learn from Fanon or what insights we might take forward from his work, it is precisely the sense of life on the threshold, life at a moment when the entrenched and hegemonic orthodoxies of our time seemed, if only laterally, mutable. In the closing of The Wretched of the Earth, Fanon evokes this sense, and I'm going to quote at some length here, just because I think what he says here is really important for thinking about Fanon in the context of contemporary politics. As he writes, quote, the third world must start over a new history of man, which takes account of not only the occasional prodigious theses maintained by Europe, but also its crimes, the most heinous of which have been committed at the very heart of man, the pathological dismembering of his functions and the erosion of his unity. And in the context of the community, the fracture, the stratification, and the bloody tensions fed by class. And finally, on the immense scale of humanity, the racial hatred, slavery, exploitation, and above all, the genocide whereby one and a half billion men have been written off. So comrade, let us not pay tribute to Europe by creating states, institutions, and societies that draw their inspiration from it. Humanity expects other things from us than this grotesque and generally obscene emulation. So what strikes me here, along with Fanon's sensitivity to the ways in which class functions in tandem with race, is his understanding that, to paraphrase Audrey Lord, one cannot use the master's tool to destroy the master's house. To build a new world, a just world, and a committed world, it isn't enough to tweak our already existing institutions. It's not enough to invert the terms and conditions of engagement while maintaining the same base structures, and it's not enough to work within the system. Radical change, as Fanon understood, requires a break in thought a rupture that is not degenerative, but is rather enabling, creating the space for other imaginaries and other structures of being and feeling. What Fanon is saying drives to the heart of radical politics and his exhortation that we explode the horizons which limit our vision, that we understand that to say black life matters is something entirely other than to claim that all lives matter, something more radical, that we understand that when we ask or when we demand that roads must fall, what we're talking about isn't a statue, but about the epistemological frameworks which undergird the continued material violence of the 21st century. But of course, this is no easy task, and for those of you who've been following the decisions by Oriel College around the road statue and plaque earlier this week, um, it's fairly obvious just how strong the centrifugal impulse of institutions and capitalism are. So I want to end very quickly in my last 30 seconds by pointing out that we also have much to learn from Fanon's myopias. Fanon was not perfect, especially around gender. Fanon's writing is notoriously difficult from this perspective. And you might notice in all the things I've been saying, I've been saying he, him, man, that's all Fanon, and that's deliberate. Indeed, even his influential Algeria Unveiled essay demonstrates a brand of sexual politics that are troubling, to say the least. And for those of you unfamiliar with this essay, in this work, Fanon attempts a reading of the veiled woman through the colonial gaze, describing her insurrectional potency as she moves through the streets with her weapons of trade concealed from you under her hijab, and encapsulated in statements that, quote, the woman who sees without seeing... The woman who sees without being seen frustrates the colonizer. She does not yield herself, does not give herself, does not offer herself. And I think there's much we could unpack in that that's problematic. But again, I think this is a productive opportunity in that by critiquing Fanon, we stand to gain insights as significant as those which we might find from taking him as inspiration. Thank you.
you. I'd like to introduce our next speaker, um, Dr. Michael Burns. Um, he's lecturer in philosophy at the University of the West of England. Great, and thank you so much, and thank you for being here. Um, I do think it's a great test, and it's been on that we have people from different disciplines all kind of coming at them from different angles, because I think one of the most interesting things about Fanon is sort of the way in which you could never just put him in one box. He's philosophically interesting, psychoanalytically interesting, interesting politically, interesting in a literary and sociological sense. So um, I'm excited to contribute to the discussion. And especially, I'm glad that you ended with something I was going to start with, which is the issue of... Um, uh, I'm going to talk about humanism in Fanon. It's a particular interest of mine. And one of the things I was going to apologize for right off the bat is how much I was going to say the word man and he um, over and over. So now I don't have to do that. Um, so what I want to talk about is why I've recently been working on Fanon and what from a, a philosophical perspective I find interesting. Um, and I come to Fanon um, from a larger project of looking at the contemporary relevance of humanism, in particular, humanism as a potentially valid political philosophy. Um, and for me, that comes from an interest in both classical existential humanism, but also Marxist materialism, and trying to think the human in between those two poles. And I think that Fanon is both a really great resource in general for thinking that question, um, but a particularly relevant figure. And my work in Fanon started um, a year ago when I was living and teaching in Baltimore in the States. And um, I apologize in advance as well. A lot of the political references I'll be using um, are stateside. I haven't been here long enough to adequately and uh, sort of intelligently speak on these things. So I'm excited to learn from others here. But um, as a lot of people know, last year was a particularly weird and troubling and at certain points inspiring year um, in America. At the same time that we had an increased amount of systematic uh, police violence um, and executions, um, when we got to see systematic anti-black racism um, sort of coming through all aspects of society, um, it was matched by a very strong affirmation um, of blackness and of black culture. Um, at the same time that we had to witness police shootings uh, in the case of someone like Michael Brown or Freddie Gray in Baltimore, um, at the same time we were dealing with that, we had some incredible um, affirmations of blackness in art and music last year. And just for example, if anyone wanted a soundtrack to this. Um, I think records like Kendrick Lamar's The Memphis Butterfly, Kamasi Washington's The Epic, and D'Angelo's Black Messiah um, really served some, a really strong purpose. And in particular, I'm sure people have seen videos. Uh, there was rallies all along the states where people were marching while singing Kendrick Lamar lyrics. Um, but all that gets back to the point of Fanon's humanism, and in particular, the potential I see in Fanon's humanism to contribute to contemporary political activism, um, and in particular, struggles like the Black Lives Matter movements, um, but of course, uh, struggles to fight against anti-black racism in the States and beyond. So one of the things I find interesting about Fanon is when we look at his two major works, um, Black Skins, White Mask, and Wretched of the Earth, they begin and end with a discussion of humanism. So early on in his earliest book, um, and I'll, I'll read a quote in a second, he begins by asking this question, you know, what would it mean to have a new humanism? Um, what is the aim of a new humanism? And of course, at the end of Wretched of the Earth, he returns to that question. And it's something, if you read his works, uh, humanity is always coming up. The notion of humanism is always coming up. So I'm interested in what he means by that and how we might potentially use that um, in a contemporary context. And at least in the world of contemporary political philosophy, um, humanism is not a good term um, and not an in vogue term in a lot of ways. Um, and, and for those of you that, that are sort of versed in European philosophy since the work of someone like Louis Althusser, um, humanism has not been looked upon kindly. But I think Fanon gives us a really good reason 
to return to the question of humanism and in particular the political relevance of humanism. So um, I want to read a quote, and this is from the introduction of Black Skin's White Mask. He says this, So why am I writing this book? Nobody asked me to, especially not those for whom it is intended. So? So in all serenity, my answer is that there are too many idiots on this earth. <laughs> you got to love that. Um, and now that I've said it, I have to prove it. Striving for a new humanism, understanding mankind, our black brothers, I believe in you, ma'am, racial prejudice, understanding and loving. Um, and I think along with everything else we said Fanon can do, we can at least add amateur poet um, after a passage like that. Um, but obviously for my purposes and what I've been looking at, I'm interested in what is new about this new humanism for him. Um, what are the stakes of this? And I think the most important thing to note is for Fanon, this new humanism is in opposition to the humanism of European modernity, um, a humanism that is often the humanism of the white European Christian male. Um, and often we avoid that term humanism because of that baggage, and in particular because of the, the really, really bad colonial baggage attached to that term. Um, and the humanism that he's arguing against, of course, like I just said, is the humanism used to justify and support the project of European and, and North American colonialism. For Fanon, this humanism also has had a deep effect um, on the shape of modern European philosophy. And he, he goes on to state this in the introduction. And I think here he's playing with Hegelian language. Um, he says, man is not only the potential for self-consciousness or negation. If it be true that consciousness is transcendental, we must also realize that this transcendence is obsessed with the issue of love and understanding. Man is a yes resonating from cosmic harmony. So what we see here is him using the language of sort of the Cartesian and Hegelian tradition, and against that, trying to describe the human as something primarily um, about affirmation and saying yes, um, and affirming rather than negating. Um, Fanon emphasizes in this sense the faults of the conception of the human that is wholly tied up in a conception of rationality that makes self-consciousness in a Cartesian sense or negation in a Hegelian sense the primary signifiers of one's humanity. Instead, he says that we must also realize that this transcendence, and I think when he says transcendence, he's playing with Sartre in language, is marked by issues of love and understanding. So rather than being marked as pure negation, the human is marked by a positive affirmation um, and I, I think it's important that he uses terms like love and understanding here to characterize um, what the human um, is marked by. Now, I think following this, what's, I think, important and interesting politically is that Fanon's humanism is characterized by a notion of shared struggle. Um, and the shared struggle marks his humanism more so than the sort of rational recognition or tolerance that kind of characterize uh, the liberal political tradition. Um, and this is something I think is, is particularly pertinent to our a sort of current political moment. Um, love and understanding, in this sense, signify a passion and sort of affectivity beyond the merely um, rational. And we know that this, this term and this concept, rationality, gets used in a lot of sort of classically European humanism. Um, for Fanon, then, this humanism, along with signifying a shared struggle, is universal. And he says this over and over, you know, a universal humanism, a humanism that signifies universality. And he says it must be universal to correct this faux-universalism of modern European humanism. 
um, a humanism that was never a humanism and never a universality in the first place. I mean, of course, this is the humanism which only ever gave status to the white Christian landowning male. As Fanon states, and, and all these quotes at this point are from uh, Black Skin's White Mask, he says, We believe that an individual must endeavor to assume the universalism inherent in the human condition. So starting from that idea that that universalism is already inherent in the human condition. So when we affirm humanity, we are affirming something already inherent. Um, he goes on right after this and says, um, well, a couple of pages after, and says, society, unlike biochemical processes, uh, does not escape human influence. Man is what brings society into being. I mean, kind of relating to what was just said, this project of humanism um, for Fanon is interesting because it entails a creation um, and a creation of a new future. And often we'll see him uh, reminding us to not look back to the past um, for a new political future, not look back to the past for a new sort of humanity, but making creation the task of, of humanity. Um, and I think in this sense, we see this emphasis on, on the political will in Fanon's work in a really important way. Um, and an emphasis on the way in which we can literally will a new society collectively. <laughs> For Fanon, then, this universal humanism is not only a fact, um, but it's a reason to live and something to strive for. Um, it's something that sort of creates activity and projects in one's life orientation. Um, he himself says, um, and that is my reason for living. The future must be a construction supported by man in the present. This future edifice is linked to the present insofar as I consider the present something to be overtaken. I think that's a really important um, articulation of his project. And I think it's important that, to note that from this humanism, once again, it's an activity, it's a creative process, it's a matter of affirmation. Now, I'll say a little bit before finishing up about, if I have a few more minutes, sure. Great. Um, about how he kind of comes back to this question of humanism then at the, in the closing pages of The Wretched of the Earth. Everything I've talked about thus far is present pretty early on in the early work. Um, but in The Wretched of the Earth, Fanon connects this humanism with the political project of an anti-colonial nationalism. Um, he says, and this is from Wretched of the Earth, if nationalism is not explained, enriched, and deepened, if it does not very quickly turn into a social and political consciousness, into humanism, then it leads to a dead end. So in the later work that's more explicitly political and tied to the critique of colonialism, he comes back to humanism as a necessary part of that project. And of course, this humanism remains grounded in the critique of a previously existing European humanism. So he says, this Europe, which never stopped talking of man, which never stopped proclaiming its sole concern was man, we now know the price of suffering humanity has paid for every one of its spiritual victories. Um, and I think that's a really, really crucial line. He goes on right after this and says, when I look for man in European lifestyles and technology, I see a constant denial of man, an avalanche of murders. Um, and there was a passage I was going to read as well that you have already quoted. Um, but he ends that, that text by saying, let us re-examine the question of man. Um, and for me, I think that's one of the most important and crucial things um, that political philosophy needs in general right now, and in particular, something that political philosophy needs to think if it wants to actually contribute to existing struggles, not just in a theoretical way, but in a practical way. Um, and I think, in particular, this is something Fanon can offer it. And I'll just end with, with one last quote. 
Um, this is also from Wretched of the Earth. He says, for Europe, for ourselves, and for our humanities, comrades, we must make a new start, develop a new way of thinking, and endeavor to create a new man. Um, and I think that right there is what Fanon can really offer contemporary philosophy and political thinking. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to introduce our final speaker. Uh, Dr. John Narian is a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at the University of Warwick, and he is Academic Director of the New Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies at the Drum. Okay, thank you. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm going to preface this with my wife gave birth about 11 days ago, so I'm very tired. <laughs> so if I start drooling or talking, start singing you lullabies, you just slap me, okay? Okay. All right. I, I haven't written a kind of script. I'm just going to talk about Fanon and kind of five, five things that we can take from his work. I'm a sociologist, so in many ways, uh, less Fanon the philosopher, more Fanon the revolutionary, right? Because that's, that's what I'm interested in, revolution. <laughs> I'll, put my I'll put my cards straight on the table. <laughs> um, why, you know, I, I, when I was on the train down here, and I, I, was, I slept halfway, and then I got up, and I thought, what am I going to say? And I was like, well, why would you pick up this text that was, you know, recited on Fanon's deathbed in, in the early 1960s? And it doesn't come into English translation until 1965, so really it's about 50, 50 years old. Why would you, you want to read this? Why would you want to teach this to your students, right? Especially with prevent, you're getting in trouble nowadays, right? <laughs> so why would you want to do this? Because it's, it's a wonderful part of history. Let's contextualize this. When we speak about Fanon, we're not just talking about Fanon. We're talking about a historical movement that starts from the Haitian Revolution, that solidifies itself in the Bangdong movement, that unveils itself as the Third World Project, and this new humanism is linked to a whole new world. Right? A world where the racial binaries of the dark and lighter races, the dark meridian that W.E.D. Bois called the color line, is essentially dismantled. That's why we'd go back to Fanon, because large bits of that edifice are still with us today. And the other reason you go back to Fanon is because, basically, he's right. <laughs> you wouldn't go and read something if it was wrong. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll just destroy modern publishing with that. Okay. The reason Fanon is right is because what Fanon does, if you read The Wretched of the Earth, if you ever teach Wretched of the Earth, never give your students the conclusion. Right? Because the conclusion is a very happy, empowering, you know, people go out and they want to, you know, love people and it's all great. But actually when you read the text, it's downright, it's downright downtrodden, man. It's, it's pessimistic. It's pessimistic because Fanon does not believe that the national independence movements that have come to, to push forward decolonization will actually win out in the end. He believes that the violence of imperialism, which was a colonial violence of of racialized hierarchies will adapt and we'll end up in a situation of neo-imperialism, right? Where he has a wonderful line where um, the blacks are whiter than the whites, mm -hmm. right? And that is essentially, we can, we'll pull this out. I'm just going to like throw some grenades out there and you guys can throw it back, right? But that's essentially where we, where we are today in the modern world. We have a neo-imperial global economy and large bits of us are stuck on various points of it. Right, so we can talk about that a bit later. So that's w one of the reasons you go back to Fanon, because he's right about this. He's right about the situation of neo-imperialism that we find ourselves in. And you say, well, well, what are empirical... You know, give me an empirical example of this. Look what's happening in Europe today. Right? 
The problem of Europe today is the problem that Europe, of Europe 50 years ago. If you read Wretched of the Earth, one of the reasons you might want to go back to it today, and I've just been writing a, a book chapter about this, is that Fanon diagnoses Europe's own problems. Europe can't help but create its own problems because it's incapable of solving them. And it's incapable of solving them because it's heavily brought into a system of global capitalism that needs a racialized geography of production, but then creates consequences that it can't deal with. You want a present-day example of this? Look at the neo-imperialism that is bringing swathes of people to European borders, whether this is interventions in Syria or whether it's the IMF and World Bank policies that displace people in Africa and send them towards European borders, right? And the only reason people come here is because we tell them how great bloody Europe is. I don't know why you'd want to come to the UK. It's cold. It's dank. All right, you've got a decent healthcare system, but that's imperial as well. We can talk about that a bit later. <laughs> right? Why would you want to come here? Because we've sold the world of this Eurocentric idea. And Fanon diagnoses that Europe... He basically steals Amar Cesar's critique of Europe as, as a site of a boomerang, of a colonial boomerang, of European practices of imperialism that boomerang back to the center. So when you read Fanon and you can diagnose Europe, that's why you go back today, because it's essentially the same thing. All of us are talking about why we should welcome migrants and give them citizenship. Oh, yeah, let's just make them join the very imperial system that created their journey here. Yeah? But why would you want to join this society? All right, we might even talk about the house and field Negro for Malcolm X a bit later. Because that's exactly what Fanon diagnoses. Why would you want to join this system? So that brings us to two key points which I'm going to end on, right? Why would you want to go back to Fanon? Well, because he has a concept of liberation. Liberation in 1961 is very clear. Liberation in 2016, what does that term mean? I, I mean, I use terms like liberation, revolution, emancipation, and I think that sounds stupid. I mean, honestly, what do these terms mean in 2016? That's for you to think about. What do they mean? When we talk about Black Lives Matter, yeah, we want police to stop killing black people. That's a given. <laughs> But do we want to get rid of the system that leads to that situation? Do we want to get rid of the system that means that you can't get a job, so the police have to police you? Because that's the real reason they do. Yeah? They'll stop shooting you, they still won't give you a job. Right? So what does liberation mean? Now, we might want to go back to Fanon because there's a, li there's a concept of liberation that is linked to blackness, linked to humanism, and also linked to a new geopolitical economic solution. We used to talk about these things, it's called socialism. We don't talk about these things anymore, so that, that's the other one. And the final one, and one of the things you might want to go back to Fanon for, is this concept of solidarity. What does it mean to be in solidarity with other people? Fanon's text is, a, you know, if, you want to just, if we be very informal, he literally cusses out European left-wing politics. And he says, you guys of the left have been talking about socialism and communism whilst all the time perpetuating an imperial system that, that basically keeps three-thirds of humanity in poverty. And you'll still see that today. We call that welfare state capitalism. Yeah? Welfare state capitalism that will still impoverish large bits of Africa, large bits of Asia, and Latin America. What is it to be in solidarity with other people? What is it to make those links? Because a new humanism recognizes the humanity of everyone not just people who dress like Westerners. These are the reasons you might want to go back to Fanon. 
because his words still speak to us in the 21st century. If they didn't, we wouldn't have events like this. Right? I mean, there are events about one-dimensional man, Marcuse and stuff like that, but they're just not as relevant. The reason it's relevant is because you and I still inhabit a neo-imperial system that Fanon narrated in 1961. And you and I still inhabit a very nice part of that neo-imperial system. So the reason we turn, we turn to Fanon is because he's right. Thank you. So I just want to open up a couple of points of discussion before we take some questions from the audience. So um, picking up in this question of humanism and what Fanon means by humanism, I guess I want to ask, to what extent is Fanon's vision of humanism separable from an Enlightenment humanism? And is, to what extent is it still indebted to that in some way? And if it is indebted to that, is that problematic? Mm. I think I'm so sorry. I don't want to go. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think I have a perfect answer for it. I mean, I think in, in some sense it's completely tied to that because, of course, it's developed in dialogue. Um, I mean, just starting with Hegel, right? So mm-hmm. sort of the, the peak of Enlightenment thought. Um, it's continued in development in dialogue with you know, Freud, um, with Marx in the background, a lot of figures who are, of course, completely indebted into that. I think there's a way to embrace that critically, and I think there's a way in which he does that, but I wonder if there's always a, a baggage that's there. And I think one of the, the big problems is that it's easy to read that humanism, and I think you kind of got to this in a certain way. Um, we can read that humanism via a reading of, let's say, like you said, the conclusion of Wretched of the Earth, um, without sort of accounting for the messiness implied in the creation of that sort of humanism. And I think there's a difference between humanism as a philosophical concept and humanism as a political activity. I think is, is in so much as we read Fanon's humanism as a purely philosophical concept, it really runs the risk uh, of staying in the Enlightenment framework. I think when that humanism becomes a political project um, is where there's less risk there. But I think that there's also another issue when we're thinking about this, which is that we maybe want to reconsider the terms of the very question because, you know, I mean, I think John really did a great job at the beginning of his talk in reminding us about Haiti. And you can't think the Enlightenment without thinking Haiti. Mm-hmm. You can't think Hegel without thinking Haiti. I mean, these things aren't separate from the Enlightenment. If anything, it's a submerged history. I wouldn't even say a submerged history. It's the other side of the coin that is not acknowledged in dominant rhetoric. And so if we say that Fanon has an indebtedness to Enlightenment philosophy, well, that's not really a bad thing because Enlightenment philosophy has an indebtedness to Haiti, to third world movements, to revolution, to insurrection, to all of these things. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice by creating these kind of false binaries or these false sort of distinctions when actually it's a much more complicated system of influence and it's a much more complicated system through which in our present day these things continue and if you look for instance at the spread of things like global capitalism and neo-imperialism they're very much indebted to an erasure of the complexity of these issues so I think we have to be really careful there Mm. Um, okay yeah I think one of the things is it's these ideas of terms, it's interesting, right? So when I teach uh, stuff and, you know, you get, you get students who are very radical and they're like, I hate democracy, <laughs> right? Because it's a Western concept. And you're like, 
And I'm, you know, because you taught them, so they, they're speaking bits of you back to you. Right? <laughs> you don't want to totally just, like, say, I don't agree with that. So you, um, you know, I have to say, well, yeah, there is this idea that democracy is just something where you vote every five years. That's very Western-centric. But the concept of democracy has a wider lineage and wider history mm. that includes people like you in it, right? And then they, like, you know, then you get their ear and then you give them some readings, hopefully they come back, and they haven't just given up on the idea of democracy. And it's a bit, humanism's a bit like that. It's about how certain movements redefine this concept. So the concept of the human in, in Western philosophy becomes very, very problematic. But there's no coincidence that it becomes very, very problematic at a time where the rest of the world is claiming that concept. Mm-hmm. You know? So exactly. when you have the rise of structuralism, later post-structuralism, dismissing the human, you can't then just jettison the same, those critiques onto people who were claiming the human, mm-hmm. right? Because they have different lineages. I use this term called colored cosmopolitanism, right, which is just a fancy word for saying uh, the Third World Project, which is where people came together and said well, there must be basic, basic uh, levels of economic and political equality before we could actually have a, a cosmopolitan environment where you and I could just accept each other's differences. That's very different from a Western tradition of cosmopolitanism, which basically roots itself in the exceptions of differences without that prior critique. So what we have to do is be very careful about what we mean by these terms and where, where we place them. Because humanism, as you guys have pointed out, doesn't mean the same thing in the third world as it does mm-hmm. in European yeah. philosophy. Thank you. Um, I want to pick up on... You, you were, one of the questions you were asking was, how do we rethink solidarity mm. now? And uh, you, Michael, were talking about shared struggle... Um, and I guess I want to think about that in, in a philosophical framework as well as a political one in terms of thinking about how we navigate a path between sameness and difference um, and how we might think kinship, for example, without thinking homogeneity. And I guess then how do the philosophical and the political connect to each other within that framework? <coughs> Sorry, lots of questions there. Uh, okay, I don't want to get too deep into the philosophy of sameness and difference. Sorry, if you're <laughs> into that kind of stuff. Um, look, I'm very simple about these things. Solidarity is is in some way some way learned, right? You learn solidarity by not saying your and my struggle are the same, but by saying your and stru- my my struggles are similar because they may be rooted to a similar enemy, right? But at the same time, you have to have the ability to, to see how your, your struggle may necessarily not be part of another person's struggle and may actually be preventative to their struggle, right? And I've been doing... I've said this a couple of times at places, so apologies if you've heard this before because people seem to keep talking, me, talking to me about this podcast that I did in November, right? But I'll give you an example. Anti-austerity in Europe, right? We're all anti-austerity, Right? But I would say if you're into decolonization, anti-austerity in Europe is a very dangerous territory to be in. Because anti-austerity in Europe may necessarily mean that you just keep in place the very status quo, which is neo-imperialism. Right? You might think I'm mad. I'm not mad. I'll give you an example. You all like the NHS, right? Yeah? You all support it? Yeah. The NHS is an imperial institution. Right? It literally takes doctors and nurses from the third world 
and it made sure that they then serve us, right? And I'm, I'm complicit in this, and I like my NHS, right? But it's, it's, it's not a national health service, it's an imperial health service. I'll give you some statistics. At the height of the Ebola crisis, in Sierra Leone, there were over 100 doctors and over 1,000 nurses. But at the same time in the UK, there were 20 Sierra Leone trained doctors in the UK and over 200 nurses. Can you see percentage-wise how that's massive? And they were in the UK, right? We still want to save our NHS, but we don't want to save an imperial system, right? So the complicity between our struggles isn't always the same. Just because you got it bad here doesn't mean it's the same as you got it bad in South Africa. Okay? Say a little bit. Um, I mean, I think one thing in, in terms of shared struggle, and this is maybe a reductive thing, I mean, I think, I think shared struggle has to focus on shared enemies and shared problems. I think capitalism um, has to be named and named explicitly mm -hmm. and in capitalism as inherently intertwined with colonialism always and forever. Um, and, and I think that there's something that happens when, uh, I mean, I'll use the example of the states. There's something that happens when a white person in the suburbs turns on the TV and sees a, another black body that's been executed by the police, and they think, oh, shucks, that's sad, but that has nothing to do with me because that's a system that I'm not a part of. Um, and there's this line, here, actually, I didn't read it, but I have it in here, where Fanon says, there comes a time when silence becomes dishonesty. It's from one of the letters in, uh, towards the African Revolution. And I think there's a point at which um, silence and the silence of, in particular, a lot of North American and European white intellectuals um, and others, that silence is wrapped up in sort of being silent about the effects of capitalism and the history of colonialism as long as it's not affecting my body, my neighborhood, whatever it might be. Um, and I think shared struggle starts from kind of, in one sense, not being quiet, and in another sense, shutting the hell up to uh, focus on and listen from people who are, are, are facing that in a way that, that you are not. And I think that sometimes, especially in philosophy, um, and I can say something bad about philosophy because it's, it's next to my name. If you guys do it, I'll get mad. Um, but philosophy loves telling people how to live. Philosophy loves theorizing about the real world in a complete and totalized way. Philosophy often doesn't like uh, shutting up and listening. And I think that shared struggle has to start from that. And I think that, that encountering Fanon, and I hope that if you haven't already, we all encounter Fanon, um, I think he does that to you. So. And I guess the thing to remember is when we're thinking about these ideas of capitalism and imperialism, I guess we can say neo-imperialism, although I don't know that the prefix is necessary there, is that it's created the world as we see it. So this combined and uneven world in which we live, in which 20% of the doctors in Sierra Leone are in the UK, is directly a product of that. And so I guess when we're thinking about questions of solidarity and unity, to me that's kind of the basis, that we're part of a unified system in which we are made unequal in different ways. And I think unequal is different from different. And I guess the other thing I'd say is, you know, I, I am not a monster. I think it would be great if a suburban white person in Massachusetts or wherever felt sad when they saw a black body. But equally, I think the kind of individual politics of empathy aren't taking us anywhere. And we need to think more in terms of structures and large-scale politics. I don't necessarily think individuals are doing all that much good anymore or ever. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
Thank you. Um, and just one, one last question from me. Um, Maddie, you talked about, you cited this line about the worldliness of the text. Mm -hmm. And all three of you, in different ways, made reference to form and style in Fanon. Um, and Fanon's work obviously moves across different genres and styles and adopts different modes. How significant is that to the way in which we read him and the way in which we use him, I suppose? I mean, I think it's hugely significant. Fanon is incredibly literary. Um, for people who are unfamiliar with it, there's recently been the publication of these um, writings, early writings of Fanon that people thought were lost, amongst which there are a couple of plays that he penned. I mean, he was a very literary writer. If you read <coughs> Black Skin, White Mask, Wretched of the Earth, the essays in the other volumes, they're highly literary in their range of reference, also in their idiom. He does extended literary critiques, particularly in Black Skin, White Masks. And I think that that's, that's an important aspect of Fanon. And I think that it's both something highly productive in how we engage with Fanon, but also quite dangerous. Um, I do teach Wretched of the Earth and Black Skin, White Mask to my students, and you wouldn't believe how many people or students can miss the politics because of the literary idiom or because of the way that the language is written, because of those sorts of things. It's very easy to get kind of led astray by that, but at the same time, I think there's an accessibility. But I also think, you know, when we're thinking about the worldliness, we do really have to think about who Fanon is and the kind of system he was coming up in. I mean, he was the recipient of an extraordinarily traditional orthodox hegemonic French education. He was the beneficiary of French imperialism for most of his life. And, you know, to his credit, when he woke up and looked around, which was predicated on his own racialization rather than empathy, seeing it happen to someone else, he was disgusted by it and spent the rest of his life fighting against it, and that's great. But equally, we have to take that to our reading. So for instance, as should be evident what we've been saying, Fanon makes these grand declarations about Europe. But in a lot of ways, they're kind of, to me, incredibly uninteresting and overly simplistic because the Europe he's talking about is actually France in a certain time, and then later the United States. That's not Europe as a whole. There's something that I think does get kind of reductive in those sorts of readings, which doesn't take away from their force as politically inspirational, as important. But I think knowing these kinds of things does add a dimension to what he's saying. And likewise, if we're thinking about the kind of sociosexual dynamics in Fanon, it's very much a product of his position as a middle class, mixed heritage, évolué, who is traveling in these privileged circles. Um, and, you know, Fanon also, I think it was something that he never quite made his peace with. His own kind of remarks about his personal life in this regard can be quite interesting, in which he essentially says, my personal life has nothing to do with my writing, you're being stupid, don't talk about it. Which is true, but then you also look at his writings, and particularly, I think, the stuff that he writes in Black and White Mass about the woman of color and the white man is hugely, hugely problematic. I mean, and again, it's easy to say, well, he's writing in this time when this kind of feminization of Africa and this certain so psychosexual dynamic was the sort of hegemonic orthodoxy. He was very influenced, although he rejected nakertude, et cetera, et cetera. But we still have to question that and critique it and keep it in our dialogues, I think. Well, should we take some questions? Um, if you could wait for the microphone to get to you before you speak uh, for the sake of the podcast and also if you could endeavour to ask a question rather than give us a long commentary and do kind of try and keep it brief because I can see there's lots of people who would like to ask questions. This lady first, please. Thank you for your talk. Um, I understand... Um, this, uh, this talk is outside of my discipline, so if I say something that you, don't dis uh, that you disapprove of, I will not be hurt at all. <laughs> so 
I understand that he came from a middle-class uh, family, and he probably read Trotsky. There is similarity between his thinking and Trotsky. And, of course, he read probably Freud, too. And if he read Freud, then he would know that his, his behavior is quite reactive. It's like killing the father so the, the son will merge. And he focused, as Hannah Arendt would say, on the dominator rather than the dominated. And the, the way... Um, so, sorry, just one second. Uh, there is, uh, and, the, uh, and that's how we create victims. Uh, what I thought of in the 16th century, I, I finish in a minute, in a second. Um, <laughs> in the 16th century, uh, the displaced homeless Jews um, through, were thrown out from Brazil, and they landed in Martinique. And the Dutch uh, found that they have talent, and they created the uh, sugar industry and the place um, it, to replace the tobacco. And the place was very, very prosperous. I Can was you just thinking, get to the, the why? Question. Yeah, 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 yeah. I said a second. <laughs> I, I was, I was wondering <laughs> why Fanon would not stay in the Martinique and use his brain and sweat to make the place prosperous rather than become um, this universal revolutionary. What are your, th your reflection you. on this? Okay. Any thoughts? You have asked a question that's asked of Fanon all the time, is that how come he ends up joining, and it's a part of politics of solidarity, he actually ends up joining eventually the Algerian fight for independence, mm -hmm. and he's not Algerian. Right, which shows you mm -hmm. the politics of his humanism, which is that you can join solidarity in these fights regardless of your context. Right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's the what kind of the kind of answer. I mean, as far as why he didn't stay in Martinique, in the time in which he was being educated, that just, I mean, middle class people like Fanon would go to France. He went to France for his studies. Um, he was also part of the army. Um, people from the Old Dominions were citizens of France. So he was a French citizen, not just a subject. Um, so that was just the thing that people did. And that was where he became aware of his racialized existence and discovered solidarity. There you go. I'm sure the speakers will be happy to answer your question more thoroughly at the end. Uh, gentlemen over there, please. So I think the panel has established Fanon was a hero and a crystalline epistemologist and a brilliant stylist. And, and with your largely literary and philosophical background, you, you bring that out. But there are questions, aren't there, about outcome, um, which would come from the political sociology or developmental studies thing. Um, just how good an idea is it to follow a Fanonist program? Where does it take you? What do we see in the world where this is followed? And we could contrast here the Mandela uh, approach, which is he's another hero of decolonization. Uh, Fanon has this annihilatory Manichean approach. Uh, there is a colonial zone, and our task is to destroy it. That's, that's what we have to do. And that happened in Algeria. No, nothing left. Very different from Mandela. And now, if we look around the world, we see the torturers and gunships of the post-colonial states fighting the murderers of uh, ISIL and Al-Qaeda. And there are themes from Fanon which come up poignantly, aren't there? Have you heard of the wretched of the sea? Young men who try and flee a hopelessly stagnant and corrupt Algeria to get back into that Europe 
which Fanon recommended. And they tear up their passports in the way so they can't be sent away. And do you not imagine that there might possibly be a connection between Fanon's desire to destroy the colonial zones, zone and Daesh's insistence that what we have to do now is to destroy the grey zone, the grown zone of integration and mixing? Isn't there, isn't there a disturbing continuity here which I hear nothing about at all? Okay. No, we, we can talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that. <laughs> I've got a lot to say. I, I have stuff to say. <laughs> Do you have stuff to say, Michael? I have stuff to say. Oh, I, have, I, have, stuff to say. I have very little, so I'll let you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Do you want to start, Jeff? Okay. okay. I'm going to be nice. Um, okay, so are you basically saying Fanon is the foundations for Islamic State? Okay, so let's let's that. let's work with this idea, right? So actually, one of one of the the the, the idea of what you've described as Fanonian decolonization is only the first bit, mm-hmm. and it's the bit that everyone talks about. You know, you can even buy you don't even have to buy Wretched the Earth. You can just buy On Violence, the first chapter, right? You like you know, And when they did the, I did the film screening of the documentary. Yeah, it was, yeah. Lauren Hill. Yeah, Lauren Hill and on violence, and um, it's all about violence. But actually, it's not. If you read on, even if you read to the end of the first chapter, where he argues for a new Europe which could modify itself, you'll see that violence. Even Fanon understands that violence is a debt that ultimately can't be repaid. The 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 chapter on the neuroses that that you know those bizarre vignettes about mm-hmm. troops who who are so mentally disor- disorientated from the war that's there to put into the text because it doesn't make sense why it's there why it's there is to explain the ravages of co- decolonial violence this is what it will do to our shared humanity and then when you read the chapter on national consciousness you see the argument for a different form of resistance against colonial violence. Mainly because imperialism as a, as a violent system, Fanon understands that it's changing. That it won't, well, it will just be, there will be large-scale violence of, of military means, but it will be economic, it will be cultural. Right? Now, let's get back to this Mandela thing. Right? Are you seriously telling me that the people of South Africa have ended up in a better situation? Right? They have, they have the high, let me finish, they have the highest Guinea coefficient ever recorded in South Africa. The highest go to you know I've got my friend works at the World Bank. He went to South Africa. He couldn't believe what he saw. He couldn't believe what he saw. In fact, it, he, his argument was it's worse than apartheid. I mean, the idea that you would follow Mandela rather than Fanon. Fanon was never followed. The Third World Project was destroyed by Western imperialism, mm-hmm. right? So we can't you can't you can't argue that there was a there was a Fanonian decolonized state and it happened. Well, you could. You could say his name was, it was Burkina Faso, it was Thomas Sankara, and then he got assassinated. Yep. Yeah? So, and then it's going back to this violence thing. I just want to point out, actually, Fanon's very interesting about Daesh because Fanon predicts that this will happen. That when you don't have a concept of liberation and a shared humanism, that people will go back into what he calls, I can't remember the term he uses, but basically fundamentalist forms of religion and traditionalism. And they will not provide the new humanism that could provide a better future of liberation. So actually, Fanon would be a critique of IS. Yeah, that's pretty much what I was going to say. But I was also going to say that. 
But I was also going to say, you know, there's nothing about Wet Fun On says that is anything at all like the call to destroy the gray zone. And I think it is atrocious to suggest that Fanon is about destroying the violent institutions of colonialism, but his very utopian moments, the very purpose, if you read to the end of his work, is in fact to create a gray zone, to create a new humanism, to create a new space of solidarity, not just for the third world, but for Europe, however he defines it. And I think that it would be a really gross kind of distortion of Fanon to suggest anything otherwise. I mean, he's not ironically, a black and white thinker as much as he uses the terms black and white in his writing. Great, let's take another question. Gentlemen in the back row. Um, You started off speaking about new humanism, Michael Burns, and what I'm particularly interested in for my dissertation is, say, chapters like on national consciousness and the the form of black skin, white masks is writing in itself what role would you say artistry still has in, in achieving political activism and the general achievement of new humanism? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think a little bit more so than you. Um, I, I do find something important about affectivity um, and the way in which art and culture can both affect humans and shape consciousness. Um, I think in particular, uh, music has a really, really huge role in that. And I just think historically, um, if you look at kind of especially sort of leftist um, and leftist black American politics. Um, there's always an artistic and musical, musical movement um, that is going along with that. And in a lot of cases, it is art and it is music that can bring a lot of people that aren't at a sort of very active political consciousness into those debates. Um, I, and I know even if you look at, and maybe this is silly and I'm relying too much on popular music, but I mean, there were conversations that, that sort of creeped into uh, the sort of public discussion this year after Kendrick Lamar's album came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they were actually useful conversations and I think really pushed discussions in important ways. And that's not to say that uh, Kendrick Lamar is the, uh, the new Fanon or something like that. Um, <laughs> but, but, I, but I think, I mean, another example, someone else who I, who I don't think is perfect in his thinking but has a, a lot of interesting treats to offer, like Tanahashi Coates. Like, I don't think... You, you couldn't disconnect what Coates is doing from a certain musical and cultural tradition, um, and in particular, music and cultural tradition that's sort of historically affirmed um, blackness, I think, in a really strong way. So I, so I would think that any, any struggle moving forward, I, I think there, there needs to be a place for, for arts, music, film, things like that. But. Other questions? Gentlemen in the middle. Hi, guys. Um, I just want to make a quick sort of caveat. This is beyond my uh, intellectual uh, competence, but so I'll try and keep my question quite simple. Um, from my understanding, this, this whole uh, discussion is about the relevancy of Franz Fanon and his texts like Black Skin, White Mask and The Wretched of the Earth and how it can sort of be translated into the 21st century. I think one question that sort of immediately springs to mind is what would Fanon be doing if he was actually living right now? Um, when you look at the sort of society that we live, live in, with the sort of evolutions of military technology in the form of the U.S. military-industrial complex, you um, also look at the internet, and we live in the age of you know hackers and various other um, new forms of activism on the internet. Um, you know, I guess what I'm saying is, how can we sort of translate his ideology into a sort of a 21st-century humanity, and more pertinent to that, in the form of humanism that he's trying to sort of uh, bring into this world that we call the planet Earth. 
That's an easy question. Yeah, yeah I think Ken would be pretty angry. Um, if it's any help, his, his wife, who was his partner in much of his work, killed herself in the 80s because it was so depressing to her. So, I don't know. <laughs> There's a happy thought. Can you uplift him? I mean, I would say this is something that I think I'm probably maybe even the least qualified person here to speak about because my, my interest in Fanon uh, is relatively recent. But I do think there's something to be said for... I, I don't know what it would be like to translate Fanon into this you know, age. I don't know how, how he would sort of treat technology. And I think... I mean, I think he would be very depressed um, and not very excited. But I do think there's something about the potential for... Just to, to use a term I've used too much already, but shared struggle and a way in which some of the things that have been opened up by technology um, and certain aspects of cosmopolitanism could potentially um, be useful in that regard. But I mean, in a more like serious way, my last answer was kind of flippant, um, obviously, but I think a more serious thing to think about if we are thinking about, say, his essay on national culture and that kind of thing is that there are possibilities today that weren't available in Fanon's era. I mean, in a lot of ways, if we look at the role of arts and culture and the effective possibilities of that, in a lot of ways, it seems like we're in quite a dire situation with the sort of centralization of multinationals as a kind of mode of distribution and production, particularly if you're looking at literature um, and the global circulation of literature. But at the same time, with things like the Internet, there's all this possibility to create and to connect in different ways. There's all of these ways to do different things. And there's some really cool stuff happening in that regard with you know, Facebook fiction and SMS fiction and Twitter fiction so that different forms of culture are being dispersed in these kind of emplaced and deterritorialized ways that I think do have a radical potential. The flip side to that being that there's another sense in which this only consecrates new kind of segregations mm -hmm. amongst populations. I mean, certainly for us in the UK access to the internet is quite easy, but if you think about, say, like, I don't know, in, like, Malawi, I think, like, 5% of people have access to the internet, so there's always this kind of danger, but, you know, I'd like to think if Fanon were alive, I mean, he'd be really old, so I don't know how good he'd be at the internet, but I would like to think that he would be engaging in these kinds of lateral and alternative forms, and particularly these forms of solidarity that transcend geographical location. Okay, I'm going to be funny, and I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, because actually this is the argument I've been making for a long time. In, in many ways, it, there, there, is, there is this tendency to see technology like the internet, mobile phones, as creating a realm of global connectivity that's never been felt before, right? And in many ways, that's true, you know. I've got my, my uh, family hail from Fiji, right, from the Fiji Islands. And, and when the birth of my son happened, I put it on Facebook and they could, they could connect, right? But... In many ways, if you go back historically, you'll find that actually we were far more global 50 years ago. And in many ways, we're not as global as we think we are. Right? What if I told you that there are statues of W.E. Du Bois in India? There are. Right? And they didn't have no internet. So I don't know what the statue looks like, Du Bois. But, <laughs> but in many ways, we have to go back to thinking about Fanon's interesting because he's from a realm of where that local politics was rooted in global struggle. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, we've lost that mm -hmm. kind of connectivity. So maybe it's not getting to be, you know, using our novel, in the, the novelties of the internet, but rather re-inheriting that global nature of struggle and how we fit into the struggle. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I've been kind of working on recently is, well, what is Black Lives Matter? Right, what is it? Because 
I want it to be the return of Black Power and the Black Panthers. Right? But there's a whole subgroup that don't want that. Right? So it's about, I think, it's about going forward, but also looking back. So Fanon's useful in that sense of how can we root our local struggles in global struggles, and then how can we build those, those realms of solidarity? Um, gentlemen on that side, please. Thanks. Uh, I'll caveat as well and say I'm not as familiar with Fanon's work as I should be, but I am interested in his influence on Steve Biko, and uh, my question is in that context, because... I understand Fanon's influence to have been specifically around the psychology of victimization. And in South African apartheid, the idea of black people being uh, shaped into drawers of water and hewers of wood in their self-perception, as well as the way uh, the, the controlling class uh, saw to them. Uh, what in, in today's terms can we take out of Fanon in the process of rebuilding self-esteem in environments that have been through uh, serious psychological warfare. Anything on that side, well, the yeah, gentleman there. Hi, um, I'm just wondering uh, because uh, um, I think Fanon sort of extends uh, Du Bois' double consciousness, concept of double consciousness, and of course, Du Bois' double consciousness arise from arise from uh, an American context, whereas Fanon is more of like the, the European side. Of the I'm just wondering how they complement each other in terms of articulating this awareness of uh, oppression, of racial oppression or cultural oppression in general. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Great. So responses to one or both of those questions. I'm not. We could write a whole book about the first question. That's a wonderful question. Um, I'm not going to. Can I, can I go to a different context? Because the Biko example. I would know less about, but if we went to say Huey P. Newton, right, and we looked at how the Panthers use Fanon's work, they took the idea about zones of coloniality very seriously and then tried to create zones of insurrection within those zones. So the, the free breakfast for school programs, the, the, the schooling programs, the healthcare system, in many ways it to rebuild self-esteem is to do as Fanon says, is to disattach yourself from the very norms of Western modernity because they're very pernicious. And lots of us exist in zones where those norms don't apply. So, so in, in, you know, take the example of, of, of the US, a Western norm would be that you'd have a healthcare system, but we find large sections of the black population don't have healthcare. So to rebuild yourself is to provide yourself with the things that have not been provided for you often. And I think you find that in the anti-apartheid struggle. You find a sense of self-worth. You know, why would you come up with the concept of black is beautiful if, if you hadn't been told black wasn't beautiful for the last 300 years, right? It's rooted in a need. So rebuilding yourself is, is rooted into pragmatic situations. And I think you see that with Fanon's idea of sovereignty and national culture because those are the very things that have been stripped from the colonized. You do not have sovereignty. You do not have control of your land, of your borders, and you do not have control of the people within those, those areas. So in many ways, it's about reframing the very things that you've been, you don't have, but not, as I think the quote was about, the, the great quote from the conclusion about just a reflection, a mirror image yeah, of Europe, exactly. right? It's about creating something new. Does that make sense? Is that, you know, we could thrash this out over a beer later. Um, Fanon and Du Bois, that's a great question. I'm just uh, writing a paper, not on the two, but basically I think you see a, a shift 
and in Fanon's work, like you see a shift in Du Bois's work. So Du Bois is very famous for the color, for the concept of the color line. But if you read the second preface to Bla uh, Souls of Black Folk, you'll see that he he reframes the idea of the color line around a more class-based politics. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that move in Fanon's text mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. where the color line has to shift into a new, you know, I call it, uh, we don't have to call it neo, you could just call it imperial system, but a, a system where basically the oppressors may look like you. Yeah, I think that that's definitely the case, and especially if you look at the difference between black skin, white mass, and mm -hmm. wretched of the earth, the question of class is almost entirely absent in the first, mm -hmm. and really the kind of central organizing principle of the second. I mean, I think that while there are kind of correspondences between Fanon and Dubois, I would be hesitant to say that they're really talking about the same thing. I mean, in Fanon, it's, it's much more a kind of tripling, but it's not a tripling in the sense of a split. There's a sort of mm -hmm. simultaneity there, right? Because he talks about this kind of this kind of almost existential, but then he takes it also material in that it's historical, it's epidermal, it's written on the skin, this kind of simultaneous experience of the externalized self, which is then internalized, but is also rooted in a historical process or a historical perversion in his terms. So I think there's something similar in the kind of challenging of the notion of the unified bourgeois individual subject but it's done in very different ways. And then particularly in his later work, it really does center on these issues of class consciousness and in a sense, almost authenticity via <laughs> class struggle and class consciousness. Okay, let's take another question. Um, gentleman in the back row. Cheers, thanks a lot. Um, one thing that I've really enjoyed about this talk has been the kind of multiplicity and the complexity of Fanon that's really come through. You know, we've had Fanon the revolutionary, Fanon and his inheritance to European modernity, Fanon the literary stylist. But um, one thing that I've been thinking about, and I just basically want you guys to give me the answer on it, is um, what do you think about the kind of role that the theological does in Fanon's work? So here I'm thinking about the idea of the colonizers as the damned, you know, in La Damne de la Terre, you know, I'm thinking about the way that the description of the zone non-being echoes Augustine's understanding of evil and the idea of theodicy, you know. Um, it, it, you mentioned a little bit about Fanon's background and education in Martinique. That was also a distinctly Catholic education as well, and it gave him that kind of grammar, which I really think, you know, the black skin, white mass kind of, um, it, it follows that Dante's descent into, into hell and then mm. always ends with this call to prayer, you know. So I just wanted to find out, you know, this is something that's been kind of erased when we think about Fanon, you know, the materialist, the Marxist, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to think about, yeah, what kind of work that the religious and the theological does in that. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, really, really good point. And I think in particular, you know, he's not only coming from a background where he's being affected and exposed to those theological ideas, but in an intellectual climate where the specter of theology is kind of in the background there. I think when we think about colonialism and what it means to be a colonial subject, I think the notion of sin comes in um, really aggressively. I think the way that sin kind of gets used, and whether it be sin um, historically used in a class way or in, in the context of colonialism to create this shift in subjectivity and reinforce a power structure at the theological level. And I, I think you can kind of see a relationship then between um, sort of the, the, the political and the psychological, because I think a lot of what's going on at the psychological level is the, ex the exploration of the consciousness uh, of one that's been affected theologically in terms of sin and things like that. So and I think the, the Augustine reference is really crucial right there. But, but yeah, I haven't read much on theology and Fanon, but it sounds like an interesting route to go down. Mm -hmm. Any other? No. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think there was a question. Lady with the glasses. Hi. Um, I'm going back to the, what the gentleman was talking about earlier with violence. And while I'm not going to say that I think that Fanon advocates a sort of jihadi violence of Salafi jihadism and Daesh and stuff, I don't think that you can ignore the fact that he is an advocate of using violence, whether or not it's his first point on his agenda. I mean, he participates in the Algerian conflict, and they definitely use violence to achieve emancipation. So I was wondering if you could bring violence back into it and kind of marry the kind of violent fanon to the revolutionary fanon and um, to talk about where you think the place of violence in the struggle for emancipation is today. <laughs> you really want to get someone arrested, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a migrant. <laughs> yeah. Those of us on visa should just... Yeah, that's a but I just lock me up, they'll send you back. I just get locked up. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, Theresa May will come find us. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want to? Anyone? I mean, I just don't want the home office to come knocking. I'm on a visa. All right. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm probably already on a list somewhere, so I'll just talk. Um, the idea of violence, I think we have to contextualize the, vi the concept of violence, right? Which is w when you do have an occupying force. You know, Fanon's saying violence is probably your last means, right? But let's, let's put this in a kind of abstract thing that won't get me locked up. <laughs> Malcolm X had a very, very interesting take on revolution, which was he said that when he talked about the black revolution, he argued that you don't get a revolution without bloodshed. I would just say I agree. So in many a sense, if, if you don't get a revolution without bloodshed, then Malcolm X also says you should take revolution out of your vocabulary. Revolution would not be pretty. Revolution would be quite messy, right? Even if, even if you take that, I think modern-day capitalism will eventually collapse, right? I'm a fool. I, I think that the system don't make sense. So I think eventually it would collapse. You would have a state of anarchy for a bit. There would be violence, right? I not necessarily... Don't, I don't think, though, that you can take Fanon's reflections on violence and literally just transmute them into the 21st century, mm -hmm. right? Because it's, it's a different context. We might be under an occupied force. I might argue that neo-imperialism is a global empire. But I'm not sure that you and I starting guerrilla movement at the LSE New Academic Building will, <laughs> will solve its problems. So in that sense, you know, I do think violence is a necessary part of revolution, but how that violence manifests itself will be very specific. Right. I hope in the yeah. last bit doesn't yeah. get me locked up. Um, I, without, so I'm going to say this while trying to keep my name off of these lists mm. you keep talking about. <laughs> I didn't know, oh, anyway. Um, is that, I mean, at the most basic level, what Fanon suggests with respect to violence is that the colonial imperial capitalist project is inherently violent. Yeah. You're in a violent situation to begin with. And so to get out of that situation, the fact of the matter is you're going to need to use violence, right? But the other thing that he says, and I think that this is where maybe we could nuance it a bit more and, you know, not just like slap it onto our contemporary context, is that one of his warnings, which I think was incredibly prescient about decolonization, was that decolonization that is given and not decolonization that is fought for and won will always fail. It will always revert to a comprador class of national bourgeoisie who will be whiter than Europeans, who will simply be continuing to work for European hegemonic masters. And I think that that's really where this question comes in, because for Fanon, it's like you said, revolution has to be a struggle. 
a decolonization that is simply given is not a revolution. It's just changing names, and it's just changing the names on statues and renaming some streets, but it's not actually changing anything that's happening. Yeah. And yeah, I just think really simply to add to that, and also hopefully not end up on any list ever. I just I just don't see how you can imagine the the affirmation of humanity in the face of neoliberalism, colonialism, capitalism um, that, that's full of hugs and kisses. In, in a way in which the affirmation of humanity in a universal sense um, absolutely negates um, so many features of the contemporary neoliberal world. So there's even if it's just um, violence via the affirmation of humanity, there's. There's no way to get around that, I think. I guess the other thing to think about is that, you know, when you're thinking about capitalism, imperialism, all these isms, which we should really just have one word. I can think of a few, but I don't want to be recorded saying that. Um, is that, like, they wouldn't hesitate to kill No, you. they don't. No, they're, they're they built don't. upon violence. Our lives don't yeah. matter, so. You know, one of the successful things the Black Lives Matter, well, it's whether it's successful or not, they've done, is they haven't identified the leaders, right? Because when you identify leaders, they kill you up. Mm-hmm. Name all your, you know, name all your revolutionary heroes, right? They all get killed. They all get killed. One way or another, they get assassinated. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have an old revolutionary. It's very difficult. I mean, there's, there's Castro. No one's sitting me years. And conspiracy theorists would suggest that Fanon was killed as well. There so. you go. <laughs> I think we have time for a couple more questions. Um, gentlemen here. <coughs> I'll be quick. Just on the, um, <clears throat> it's an excellent discussion, but uh, don't like to bring uh, bring the level down. But um, on the question of music and culture, um, in Wretched of the Earth, um, Fanon said he despised blues music, <laughs> and uh, arguably that's the greatest contribution that um, black people, Afro Caribbean uh, people, have made t- to global culture. Arguably, arguably. Another question before you respond. I think the gentleman with the green gentleman with the green cap, you had a question. So something that a lot of you spoke about was uh, universalism and solidarity, and even in something that you spoke that um, Fanon spoke about, he spoke about um, blackness as a social political concept or social economic construct as well. That could be you know implanted in different places, but. I would say that there is an issue with that statement in that uh, a number of people that he criticizes in regards to solidarity on the um, white liberal left actually use that as a means of you know, taking away the color of the actual people who are being oppressed. So would you say that we still need, is there a need for solidarity in the way that he's speaking about it in this modern period? I mean, I think it depends on how you define things. I think that there's certainly still a need for solidarity in terms of political blackness. And to me, political blackness is a way of thinking about the experience of people who are racialized in certain societies. And I think, you know, what Fanon is saying isn't that black and white don't exist. What he's saying is that the meanings imbued in those identities are created through this perversion of history, through social structures, through pathologies, really. And I do think that... I I think that that's still true. I think Fanon was right. I think he's right. And I think that there is still an issue around racialized identities in 
all kinds of societies all around the world and that solidarity across those is quite important. And I actually think, you know, one of the most destructive things about the millennial turn to identity politics is the removal of this notion of political blackness or politically defined identities in favor of kind of ethno-religious, murky, other sorts of identitarian roles, which really is a neoliberal wet dream because what it means is that now we're fighting each other instead of actually standing together against the real problem. I'm not sure uh, if you're quoting directly from Fanon when you said that there's got to be a violent revolution that in order for it to succeed. Uh, that's a couple of questions back because I'm thinking of the Algerian War of Independence which he was involved in. That was pretty violent. Um, within a few years, I know like from speaking to Algerians that the next wave had sold out completely and impoverished the Algerian people. Like. Um, but the other aspects, like the title, political activism, I mean, there, is, there does seem to be universality about his work. Uh, like, I've read passages of it, and my wife, who came through, you know, the revolution in Romania, said that exactly the same thing, the next, the next wave, the supposed um, liberators who are really just the previous wave in different clothes, you know, they followed every, every phrase that he used to describe the, um, I can't use a rude word, but the, the guys who come after the revolution, the next ones that start the civil, or get involved in the civil wars and take over from the colonizers, if you like. So, um, Can you frame that as a question? Yeah, um, I'm just wondering, you know, his universality and particularly the counter-revolution, its, its applicability, but I see him as much, much more applicable to what's going on in Europe than just a straightforward North versus South or Black versus White okay, sort so of can thing. Can we just take one more question and then you can answer them both the women in there with their hands up. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask... Um, is something I've never thought about, and I just thought about it just now. Um, in what ways, if any, do you think... You were talking a little bit about it. Do you think that Fanon's um, ideas on race can be transferred to the idea and identity of gender today? Um, well, very quickly to the first question, what I would say is, I think you're absolutely right, right? It's not about these very black and white splits between Europe and the third world, although those are the terms of vocabulary Fanon uses, but that's why I think it's useful to think in terms of world modernity and capitalism as world modernity. I mean, if you think about Eastern Europe, that's a great example of a periphery within Europe or a semi-periphery going through many of the same processes which Fanon described. Um, with reference to the question of gender and race, I think it's incredibly tricky to think about. Um, people much smarter than me have written quite a lot about this, particularly Diana Fuss has written a lot about race and gender and Fanon, but I think that it's one of the big myopias of Fanon's work was his inability to think that intersection where one isn't merely racialized, but one is also sexualized or genderized in different ways. And, you know, I think uh, the little bit from Algeria Unveiled, which I read, may have suggested he had, I think, quite a fetishistic view, in fact, of the woman's body in a kind of insurrectionary context. And I think that's something that would take a lot of work to think about how these specific subjectivities and intersectional subjectivities work. But I don't think anything in Fanon precludes doing so. And I certainly think that it's possible to think a kind of radical 
racial politics, which is also attentive to the specific experiences of gender. Um, I just think it's something that you have to keep kind of working through. And just a qu quick comment on, on that thing. I think it just points out the interesting issue that, um, and kind of the importance of thinking in terms of universal solidarity. It's really hard to have a, uh, any sort of revolution in one country if you're still immersed in a global network of capitalism. Um, and you kind of just look at, you know, well, what, what happens when all of a sudden Cuba is left out of, of the economy in their entire region of the country? I think it's, it's hard to think that, and it poses a lot of problems. I don't know any easy answer to that, but it seems to be inherent in the thing in the system. Coming back to that, yeah, it's, it's not straight. Well, I'll give you an example, right? What, how can you use a Fanonian critique to deal with European politics? If Eastern Europe desires to be part of the European modern project, then it's part of the problem. Because it wants to join a system, and this is the whole point, you know, this is where Fanonian warnings become very prevalent, which is, do not do this. Because once you join the system, once you sell your soul to the devil, you don't get it back. And, this is, and that's very pertinent critique, which is, if you want to be part of this system, then you're going to be part of the problem. Even if you are the dispossessed. If you join part of it, this is what will happen. And you, you, can, you can see that across the globe, where large bits of the bourgeoisie in various countries have essentially sold out the rest of their populations to do very well. Mm -hmm. So you go to India, there's 300 million people doing okay, there's 800 million people don't got enough food to eat. Mm -hmm. Yeah? You go to China, you see large-scale inequality. And you can go to any country now. I've been to conferences where people celebrate the fact that you can go to ex-colonial countries like Addis Ababa and they've got skyscrapers. And you're like, great. But people ain't got enough food to eat. Mm -hmm. Right? We should not try to redevelop ourselves in the Western model. It's bankrupt. And that's, that's the Fanonian critique. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right? And that's what we haven't paid attention to. The, those of us outside of, of Europe have not paid attention to that. Maybe in Latin America they've tried something, but you could critique that on different grounds as well. I mean, in fairness, people have tried, but they just got assassinated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On that note, uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming. Thank you.